Welcome, everyone, once more to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer. Today, we're thrilled to welcome one of the greatest coaches to ever do it, Roy Williams. I've been the luckiest guy alive. No one has been more fortunate than me. Thank you. Coach Williams won three national championships as the head coach of the Tar Heels in 2005, 2009, and 2017. He retired in April 2021 as the only head coach in college basketball history to ever win more than 400 games at two different schools. 418 at Kansas, where he coached for 15 years, and 485 at North Carolina, his alma mater, where he coached for 18 more. I'm retired and resigning as men's basketball coach at North Carolina. It's been a thrill. It has been unbelievable. It's coaching. And that's all I've ever wanted to do. Roy Williams was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame way back in 2007, and that was before two of his three national titles. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, to say the least. People told me it wouldn't hit me until I stood up here before you. And they're right, because this is pretty cool. And we could spend the rest of this podcast reading off more of his accomplishments, but you wouldn't want that, and neither would he. You want to hear from old Roy who was kind enough to do this interview at our Charlotte Observer office in Charlotte. So let's do that. It's time to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And I promise this conversation is going to veer in all sorts of unexpected directions. So buckle up. Coach, welcome to the show. Scott, thank you very much. I hope it doesn't kill your ratings. <laughs> so last night I was what I was rewatching in preparation for this your retirement press conference mm-hmm. and listening to that once uh, again. Again, it was on April first, twenty twenty one, and people, of course, thought it was uh, April Fool's joke, which it wasn't. Uh, but you said then about whatever was next after coaching basketball. "Quote: I'm scared to death of the next phase. I love coaching." Working with kids on the court, the locker room, the trips, the jump around music, the trying to build a team. I will always love that. And I'm scared to death of the next phase. But I no longer feel that I'm the right man. So it's been about a year and a half now. And I wonder how that next phase has turned out. And has it been scary? Some of it has been scary because I don't know what's coming yet. Yeah. <laughs> next kind of thing. But it's also been great. Uh, for me, the best thing is I've been able to spend more time with my children, in particular the grandkids, and we've taken some trips with the grandkids, made it an educational thing a little bit too. And Juan and I were both public school teachers at one time, so we believe in those kind of things. Uh, so that part has really been good. The scary part is because I didn't know how I would handle uh, not having a team to coach, and that's been really hard because I do miss the coaching tremendously. I mean, I watch every game and uh, – you know, I die with every possession, and I used to never look at the score, and now I look at the score every possession. <laughs> you know, the tip we get it, go down score, and it's two nothing, and they miss, and I look at the score. Oh, they they got it right. It's still two nothing. <laughs> we score now, it's four nothing. I look at the score again, but uh, so I really enjoyed uh, following Coach Davis and our team, and uh, that part of it. But I do miss the, the interactions with the players, the locker room, the bus rides, the practices every day. Uh, I miss that tremendously, but. You know, I made decisions uh, for what I thought was the best reason. I just didn't think I was doing it as well anymore, and I couldn't handle that. Uh, and you, off air when we were coming here and we're in our, our studio in Charlotte, 
you said people still don't believe it, but this is really why I retired. Mm-hmm. So tell people who still don't believe it again what you told me. Yeah, you know, you think about what you're doing, and you're always, as a coach, you're always evaluating. You're evaluating your team. You're evaluating your recruiting, your office, your staff, everything. But you're also evaluating yourself. And I did that every day, every game, every practice. Is it good practice, bad practice, good game, bad game, good coaching job, bad coaching job? And uh, I did. I got to the point that I didn't feel like I was doing it as well as I had done before. And I really couldn't handle that. I really couldn't because I knew I wasn't going to cheat my school and I knew I wasn't going to cheat the kids. And I did. I made this statement and I said, even said this to you in the car, the first 31 years as a head coach, there were two times that I would go home and sit there and said two different occasions, if I had done this or if I hadn't done that, we, we would have won the game. And that was only two times in 31 years. So I felt comfortable about everything we were doing. I was confident. Sometimes you lose because the other team beats you. You know, sure. you got to accept that. But in my last two years, there were three times that I questioned myself so badly that I, you couldn't sleep, you couldn't do any. I couldn't do anything. And so go from two times in the first 31 years to three times in the last two. But uh, I did just didn't feel like I was doing it as well. And, and that was it. That was it. You know, uh, we did one of these sports legends interviews also with Bob McKillop uh, mm-hmm. recently. And oddly enough, he said very similar things mm-hmm. about that and uh, that he felt that he was no longer the best coach on his own bench toward mm-hmm. the end. If I proclaim that uh, we're a program constantly in the quest for excellence, uh, I've got to live that message. And... I probably could have weathered another year or two or three, uh, but it wouldn't have been right. It wouldn't have been right for Davidson College basketball in the quest for excellence that I always aspired for us to have. I think from the standpoint of do what is the best thing for Davidson, it was the best thing for Davidson College. He thought his son, Matt McKillop, who's mm-hmm. now replaced him, mm-hmm. uh, was was better. Now, those three games, I assume you're referring to to the Duke game or uh, one of the I Duke can't... game at home, Clemson game at home, Texas game up in Asheville, then the finals of the Maui Asheville Invitational <laughs> tournament up oh, there. Yeah. Those are the three because there were some uh, things that I did or didn't do that I felt like uh, was really really big in the fact that we lost those three games. How much or how little did name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal play into your decision? Basically, nothing. I mean, I knew that I wouldn't necessarily enjoy some of those things that were coming down the road, but it was. It was 99.9, and I can't even think what the other percentage point would be, but it was 99.9, and I just didn't think I was doing it as well. And and I understand what Bobby's saying. I mean, Bobby Killip's one of our great coaches, and yet he coached at Davidson, so he doesn't get the attention that Roy Williams got by coaching at North Carolina. But Bob McKillop's one of our great coaches and has coached well enough to be in the Hall of Fame. And, but it's hard to do that from Davidson, and that's not fair. But, uh, no, Bobby and I, you know, we're about the same age. Bobby may be one of the few guys a couple of months older than me. <laughs> I think he is, yeah, just a little bit, yeah. But, no, it was uh, – I knew that I wouldn't enjoy it as much uh, because I had this belief in what college athletics had always been, and I thought it was great. And we had made it over the last – five to ten years so much more student-athlete friendly and had taken better care of the kids and done some things like cost of attendance and 
that gave them more money. And yes, you know, the universities and everybody's making money and making more money than the players. And it's the name and likeness. I sort of sit on the fence at times because my uh, Peyton Manning is a nice friend. Now we're not bosom buddies, but the first week after I retired, I got a handwritten note from Peyton. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one, no football player ever did I ever love more than I did Peyton Manning. And I met him when he was in ninth grade when I was recruiting down in Louisiana. But, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing. His last year at Tennessee, and I'm going to miss these numbers, but his last year at Tennessee, they sold 50,000 jerseys sure. with his name on the back at $70 a clip. Now, it could have been 70000 at $50 a clip. <laughs> I don't know. But he didn't get one cent of that. You know, mm-hmm. and so, to me, that's not right. That's not right. You know, no. and, but, you know, the things that uh, – uh, are going on now is really stretching what my belief of college athletics should be. And I'm, I'm not a – if a youngster wants to go straight to the NBA at a high school, I have no problem with that. You know, the the NBA should be the one that doesn't want that because they make a lot more mistakes than they do <laughs> if they take somebody that's played at the college level. But, uh, you know, it uh, the transfer portal is the other thing. I'm, you know, if a kid wants to transfer, you know, go right ahead. But – there is something about making a commitment and really being committed. You know, I, I told you this. I mean, Luke May, who's one of the favorite people in the world, he 11 games his freshman year, he didn't even get in the game. And his junior and senior year, everybody in the world knew who Luke May was and was on the team that won a national championship and made the big basket to get us to the Final Four. Uh, but nowadays, if a guy doesn't play 11 games his freshman year, he's going to leave. So, I hate that part of it. I don't mind a guy leaving, but let it, let there be a little bit of a price. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sitting out a year, I was fine with that. And, you know, it, again, it's it's just my own belief. And people say, well, you could leave. And I say, yeah, I could get fired too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. And uh, so it's it depends on the way you look at it. But, no, those two things I knew I would not enjoy as much, but basically had zero effect on my decision. Your um, sort of chosen successor, you got in – to that, into your uh, former chair, Hubert Davis, had a, an amazing first year. Uh, was it easy to get him there? I mean, did did they just take your recommendation automatically, and and why did you make that recommendation? Well, I made the recommendation and pushed really hard. I think I made it uncomfortable for some people at times, <laughs> but I just there's three or four things. Well, number one, the last recruit I had as an assistant coach to come to North Carolina was Hubert Davis. So we go back a long way. Uh, everything he's done in his life, he's overachieved. People didn't think he could play at North Carolina. Well, he did. People didn't think he'd start at North Carolina. Well, he did. And he became a big-time player at North Carolina. People didn't think he'd be in the NBA, but he was drafted in the first round and played 12 years. So everything he's ever done, he exceeded what people thought. And I love those guys that are overachievers. He's the nicest individual I've ever known in my life who is also fiercely competitive. And God Almighty, I love that part of it. And so it's uh, – and I thought it was time. And I thought it was time for me to move on. And I just thought he was by far the best candidate I think that, uh, you know, I'm sure if uh, you cut me, I'm going to bleed. It's going to look like blood. But I think if anybody's ever going to bleed Carolina Blue, I think it's going to be me. And I think Hubert's right there in the same league. But to you to be that nice a person and be fiercely competitive, in which he is, and to be very bright, very organized, he had everything. And, uh, you know, even early in the season last year, I had some of my buddies getting after me about, 
well, you know, we're not very good or this kind of stuff. And I just told them just to be quiet. And at the end, and I've said this a hundred times, I said it publicly. I did, you know, we were going to finish first, second, or third in the league. And at the end of the year, we had a chance to make a run. And I believe that because we had the parts, we had everything you need to be successful. And Hubert was bright enough and tough enough that he was going to stick to it. They were going to conform to what he wanted to do. There was no doubt in my mind. And I just thought that that was a perfect thing. And uh, I just couldn't be prouder of the job that he and the kids did and the way they made that big run at the end. Uh, I never thought I would enjoy uh, being a spectator. And yet it was some of the finest, most fun and one of the finest moments of my life down in New Orleans to see them win and to get to the national championship game. This year, uh, he will find, he will feel, I'm sure, the pressure that you felt many times, which is they will have a great shot at the national championship. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the season may be considered a disappointment if they don't win it. do you think they'll win the national championship this year? Well, I think they've got the best chance. You know, and, and you're right, two or three, maybe four times I was in that same position. I loved it. You know, I'd rather people be saying good things about me than bad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they can't be all the sports writers and the radio and TV people can't be that dumb. you got to be getting it pretty close. And so uh, he will enjoy that part of it. He'll enjoy the challenge. The kids will enjoy the challenge. And there's been a lot of times where somebody, Maryland and – 2001, I guess, lost to Duke in the game. They felt like the referees took it. 2002, they came back and won it. Uh, you know, we lost in 08 and came back and won it in 09. We lost in 16, came back and won it in 17. North Carolina lost it in 81 with Coach Smith, came back and won it in 82. I mean, the kids get a taste of it, and that's important to them. And they perform even stronger and even better that following year. So I think they've got a great chance. I don't think that uh, – uh, you can pick one team and say they're definitely going to win it. But, you know, I love having a few bets on the golf course on the craps table, but I'm not not a guy that bets on college athletics. But if I were, that's who I'd bet on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. We are doing this interview, as I mentioned, in Charlotte, which, of course, is now the part-time home of the most famous Star Hill, Michael Jordan, who owns the NBA Charlotte Hornets. I'm wondering, uh, Coach, if you recall the first time you ever laid eyes on Michael and the first time you knew he was special. Yeah, no question. It's, it's, you know, I can remember where I was when President Kennedy was shot. You know, I'd hate to put it in that context, but everybody has certain things in their life that you remember. And I remember the first time I ever saw Michael, no question. I spoke to Michael's uh, high school coach, Pop Herring. And so Michael was going to come to camp. And so Sunday afternoon during registration, I would be down in Carmichael and had it open and Counselors would bring 20 or 30 kids at a time because the only people that played in Carmichael were the older kids. So it was a way for us to get every little kid the chance to play in there where they'd see on TV also. So I was there for three hours, and every 30 minutes they'd bring 20 or 30 new guys. And this one kid came in, and I asked him, I said, what's your name? I'd go around and ask their names and everything. And he said, Mike Jordan. And I said, okay. And I knew I'd had a conversation. And his... Uh, the uh, athletic director for Hanover County Schools had called us about Michael during the year, his junior year. And Coach Guthridge had gone to see him play a game. And he came back and he said, looks like he's unbelievable athletically, but all I saw him do was shoot a lot of long jump shots. 
And so I called Pops back and we talked. So we thought he was going to be really good. And so that Sunday afternoon, he was there with those kids and I kept him a second period. Mm -hmm. I told the counselor, I said, take him on back. I want him to stay one more period. And so I watched him and I thought, oh my goodness. And then he left and went back to Granville from Carmichael to Granville. It was almost a mile. Yeah. He walked. Okay, because at the counselor, there was no bus. They walked. So he got in the next group, and he came down again. And I thought, this kid is really something. So that time, I gave him a ride back in my car. He was, that was the last period. But uh, that night, I told Eddie Fogler, I think I just saw the best six-foot-four-inch high school player I've ever seen. And in, in saying that, and Michael said, oh, I mean, Eddie said, oh, my gosh, who? And I told him, well, by the end of the week, Coach Smith was having breakfast and lunch and dinner with him. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> he, got a lot to, he got to the important person. But, uh, no, by the end of that week, we knew that he was really, really something special. And in saying that, Dean Smith, Bill Guthrie, Jetty Fogler, Roy Williams, none of us could have seen that he, what he was going to do because he just had that focus, that drive, and it got better. I mean, he got more – uh, ferocious competitively with every year. And then the other thing is from his freshman to sophomore year, he grew from six four and a half to six six. I measured everybody. I worked for Coach Smith for 10 years. On October 14th, we measured everybody, weighed everybody. I got their vertical jump, their reaching height. Took out on you the literally track. measured them? Everyone for 10 years. Really? The same spot in the hallway in Carmichael Auditorium. So that way I knew it was valid because it never changed. And then we went out and timed them in the 40-yard dash and uh, timed them in the mile run. And I did that every year for 10 years, and it was as consistent as you could possibly be. And so he goes from 6'4.5 to 6'6, and he was quicker. Mm. He was bigger and stronger, but he was quicker too. And his time, I'll never forget, in the 40 was like 4 5, five or something like that his freshman year. I mean, it was very, yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, but in his sophomore year, and it was Mark Davis, Bill Guthridge, and Roy Williams. We've all got stopwatches. And we're out there, and so we yell go, and we try to start on their first movement. We know we're not professionals or anything, but they go down. And I looked at my stopwatch, and I said, hmm. I said, Coach Guthridge, what would you get? He said, I'm not sure. <laughs> and Mark Davis says, I got 4-4-0. And I'm looking at mine, and I got 4-3-8. Coach Guthridge had 4-3-9. And so – I said, maybe we all missed it. I said, Michael, rest for a couple minutes, but I need you to do yours over again. So we ran a couple of other guys. And I said, all right, Michael, we're ready for you now. And he walked past me, and that little smart aleck, little grin. He's just faster than you thought, huh? <laughs> just like that. And, and so so we timed him again. Sure enough, it was like 438, 439. So he's 6'4 to 6'6. He's bigger, he's stronger, and a lot quicker, more focused, tougher. Uh, but in saying again all those things, nobody would have predicted what he's done. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Jordan. Thank you. I was an anti-Carolina guy. I hated UNC. And here I ended up at UNC. And now that wasn't a disrespect to any of my Carolina guys. They all know that I'm, I'm true blue Carolina guy to the heart. He just had the best focus and the toughness and the drive to be the best more than anybody ever. Tiger Woods, Tyler Hansbrough, Michael Jordan. Wow. I've never seen anybody that's in the league with those three guys. In terms of sheer, sheer desire. willpower, mm -hmm. focus. I keep using the word focus. They didn't let anything get in their way, you know, and, and the desire and the toughness. I mean, it's. I was very fortunate. 
you said in that retirement press conference too something. This wasn't really about you retiring, but you just mentioned at the time you said Marcus Page made the most unbelievable shot I've ever seen. This was in 2016 to tie the Villanova game. Seemed like it was going to go into overtime. Uh, and of course it did not. But so that made me think, okay, well, so there's really probably, in my opinion, the three best shots in Carolina history in some order, Michaels mm-hmm. in 82. 18. Luke Mays against Kentucky. Looks up, driving in. May for the win. North Carolina with 0.3 seconds to go. An incredible shot. And Marcus is in that 2016 game. It's Page off balance. Puts it up. But would you order them? Would you put Marcus's number one because of the degree of difficulty? Where would you? How would you order those? Well, I would put Marcus's number one. The reason is the shot that Michael made, I could make. <laughs> the shot that Luke May made, I could make. Okay. You know, there were a time in my life, not today. <laughs> right. I'd take the one out of twenty or something like that. The shot that Marcus made, I couldn't make. So that was part of it. That he had. We were ten down mm-hmm. with like four minutes to go in that game, and he had willed us back to get us into that spot. And the contortion of his body and the things were just unbelievable. And Michael Jordan's was winning a national championship, okay? And that elevates it up there as well. But just for the shot, I would go Marcus one, Michael two. And I even told Michael. Mm. I said if we had gotten it into overtime uh, and won, that would have gone down as the most famous. Your shot would have been number two. What did he say? Uh, he just laughed. He said that'd be okay because he was there at the game. Oh, that's right. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sitting outside the uh, locker room in a little holding area, and I'm crushed. And all of a sudden, somebody comes and puts their big arms around me in a bear hug and said something to me, and I looked up, and it was Michael. And, I mean, I Scott, think of this. Marcus Page did everything he could do. In every game, every practice, every day, student athlete of the year in the ACC. I mean, just as good as you can be. What am I going to say to Marcus Page in that locker room? It's the most inadequate feeling. I still get emotional about it. The most inadequate feeling I ever had in my life. And so I said, Michael, would you mind just going in there and telling him you're proud of him? I just need a couple more seconds because I don't know what I'm going to say. And the funny thing is, so he goes in the locker room, and Marcus has got his head in a towel and he's crying. And he told me later, he said, all of a sudden, Coach, I realized that wasn't you talking. <laughs> he said, <laughs> I pulled that towel down and hope before I could see him. And he said, oh, my God, this is Michael Jordan here talking to us. But, uh, no, it, and people asked me in 17 if I thought he was coming to the game. And I said, no, he's not coming. He came last year and we lost. He ain't coming back. So this past year, people would ask, oh, we heard Michael's coming. I said, well, good. They said, well, do you think he's coming? I said, no, I don't think he's coming. They said, well, we think he's coming. I said, okay, then don't ask me. <laughs> but uh, he's a little superstitious like I am. But just think of the difference, though, is that Michael Jordan did that as a freshman. Marcus yeah. Page was a senior, and he knew this was it. And so it was just, but Michael Jordan made that shot as a freshman. And I still say the left-handed driving layup that he made over Patrick Ewing in the second half was a lot tougher shot than the one he made to win the next. Hit almost the top of the backboard, if I remember. It it did get at the top of the square. The next hell ball would go to Georgetown. Is Jordan on the What a layup! He put that ball up about 12 feet. Wow. I mean, because he had to get it up over Patrick. And and he did it effortlessly, you know. But uh, 
No, it's, they were all pretty good shots. <laughs> yeah, they were. I'm glad I saw all three of them. You, you mentioned Coach Smith, and I would be remiss not to ask you about him. Um, I think you said in your retirement press conference that you that you visited his gravesite sometimes, or and that also I believe you said, "quote I talked to him every night." We talk. I talked to him about that several years later. Needless to say, I didn't talk to him after last season, even though I talked to him every night. You know, it's it was something important when I was at Kansas. I mean, I'm coaching at a place where. Uh, James Naismith coached in Fog Allen, who was the Dr. Doc Allen, was the father of basketball coaching. He's the one that went to James Naismith and said, I want to coach. And, and Dr. Naismith said, You can't coach basketball. And Doc Allen said, Yes, I can. <laughs> and so Coach Smith played for Doc Allen. But Coach Smith, to me, uh, was the epitome of the perfect basketball coach. He was fiercely competitive, but he did things the right way. He never cheated to do anything to get any player, nothing, period, the end. You know, he was just, he was he was perfect. And, you know, yeah, he smoked and did some other things, yeah, but for right. a basketball coach, I thought he was perfect. And every day that I coached, I wanted to do some things that he would approve of. It's almost like that I wanted his approval. And after I did it, I wanted him to – uh, feel good about it and it's because he had such an influence on me I'd been a high school coach for five years but my development as a basketball coach in those 10 years I was with him came in leaps and bounds of just how to treat people and doing things for people without them knowing about it you know most people do a favor for somebody and they tell them about it sure coach Smith would always do things and wouldn't try to get any credit for it and I loved that part of it and I feel for the others' programs and the other teams at the University of North Carolina. Everything about Roy Williams as a coach uh, was influenced more by Dean Smith than anything. So I, you know, I don't know what I said there. Whatever I said, I know that I, I didn't make up any lies. But I would always think, what would Coach Smith want me to do right now? And I think that he would have been proud of the fact that I stopped. Really? Because he would have felt like, if you don't think you're doing it as well, I understand. Because he was great. I mean, basically, you know, before he passed, he would have time periods where he'd, he'd come in and out right. of making, you know, talking to you. And uh, it was his birthday. Uh, and he, uh, I had cake and ice cream in the office for him every day on his birthday from the first year I got there until the end. And his, the last year that he was alive for his birthday. He uh, came up in the office, and Linnea brought him up, and uh, he sat there and, you know, didn't say much, but he ate some cake and ate some ice cream, and all of a sudden he got this look on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, you know, you're doing a great job. And it hit me so hard. But if you're going to think and remember something about somebody, if they say something positive, it's pretty doggone good. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So it was it, that was the way I was with him, and I knew that that uh, nobody's perfect, right. and, and Coach Smith wasn't. But uh, he was as close to perfect as any person I've ever seen, and he was as close to perfect on a basketball court of anybody I've ever seen. And yet, you did some things differently from him. Yeah, and the night before I left, went, went to Kansas. We had dinner at his house, and we were out in the driveway, and I'm getting ready to get. I said, I hope I don't let you down. And this is your alma mater. And he said, you just be yourself. That's all you got to do. Because his biggest worry about me was how hard I took the losses as an assistant. 
and said, they're going to be a lot worse as the head coach. But he did. He said, just be yourself. And so I never did try to be anybody else. You know, yes, I would try not to curse because Coach Smith didn't do it, and I thought that was the right way or something. But, you know, I did a lot of things that he wouldn't do. And, you know, we played even faster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just kind of things. that. But the foundation of me as a basketball coach was Dean Smith. This was the scene just moments before the starting lineups were announced. Both the teams arm in arm with a moment of silence honoring the memory of the great Dean Smith. I think even uh, the closest Tar Heel fans to Roy Williams would tell you that Mike Krzyzewski's statements in the aftermath of his passing were some of the most poignant made. Certainly he is uh, walking in similar shoes to that of Dean Smith. So I'm interested uh, in how your relationship evolved with Coach K. Because I would assume uh, when I was there in the mid-80s going to school, and uh, it was 1984 when he started in about the double standard that existed mm -hmm. between UNC and the rest of the league, you were very, very loyal to Coach Smith. I can't imagine you were too fond of him at that point. You know, when, when Mike first came uh – you know, he was sort of like me at Kansas. You know, they didn't want me, and a lot of other people didn't want Mike when he first came, but he stood the test of time with his organization, his intelligence, his toughness, his ability. And so what he's done, I have tremendous respect for. There were some things that were said or done at that time I didn't think were right, but that's okay. Uh, but it, it was different at that time, too, because he was a young guy coming in, and he had to make sure everybody understood, hey, I'm going to fight for what I think is right. And so I was never bothered by some of the things. Some of the things that were said, I didn't think that was right, but that's okay. Uh, but I remember going and uh, taking our JV team from North Carolina over to Duke because for two years they had a JV team. Ah. And uh, we played twice each year. And, yes, we were 4-0, but I won't say anything <laughs> about that. But uh, uh, I can remember sitting there. They were just finished practice of varsity, and they were trying to clean the floor and get the seats out for the JV game. Excuse me, and Michael and I sat there and talked for 30 minutes. Mm. And I left there thinking, okay, that guy thinks the same things I do about college athletics. And we were on the National Association of Basketball Coaches Board of Directors and committees for so many years, and invariably our ideas and thoughts for college athletics were, were very, very close. And almost all the time we were on the same page. Um, and yet, yeah, when he said there's a double standard for Coach Smith, I didn't think that was right and didn't like that at all. And I don't care. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the truth. It's what he thought. That's fine. Uh, but I didn't think that it uh, was true. I didn't like the way that it was said. Uh, but Mike Krzyzewski had got to stand up for his program, too. Rick Barnes and, and Coach Smith had a little tete-a-tete -tete yeah. kind of thing. And, uh, and Rick Barnes called me. And Rick is a great friend, and still we talk to each other. And uh, uh, But that was between them. And as coach, sometimes you've got to draw a line in the sand for your players to understand. And I thought, looking back on it now, that that's what Mike Krzyzewski did. That's what Rick Barnes did. And Coach Smith did that to some people as well. Sure. And Roy Williams did too. And Roy Williams had it done to him. So it's, it's part of coaching kind of thing. How would you characterize the UNC-Duke rivalry in general, you've seen a ton of you know Yankees, yeah. Red Sox, you know all the big yeah. ones. Uh, how would you how would you characterize in it? college sports? I don't even think it's even close. 
I mean, and what the two programs have achieved individually, but 10 miles apart has a lot to do with it. We recruit a guy, bring him in on Saturday, the Raleigh-Durham airport. He goes home on Sunday. The next weekend he comes in the same airport, visits Duke and goes home. Uh, so there were a lot of things there that perhaps made it even more. When I was assistant, the Duke guys used to come over and play pickup at, at uh, Carmichael with our guys. And then later on when they, we had the Smith Center, they came over and played pickup with our guys there. Uh, so the rivalry to me is the best rivalry in all of college sports. The only thing that comes close in college sports to me is Ohio State-Michigan. And that just comes close. But no, they, every all the similarities, the distance apart, the same league. I mean, you can just go down and up and down the list. I think it's by far. And for so many years, I felt really uh, very flattered to be involved in it in, in a small part. But I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Did you, uh, you know, take more satisfaction beating Duke than anyone else? Not really. You know, some of the games, you know, they, they when uh, Austin Rivers made a three to beat us at the end of the game, and uh, they still use that. That was 2012. It's still up on their scoreboard. I love those kind of things, you know. But uh, three weeks later, we played them in their building when we had them 48-24 at halftime. Mm. But for those three weeks, it was H-E-double-L. <laughs> That's what it was <laughs> right. for me. Uh, so, no, the games, some of the great games were just off the charts. And, uh, and I loved, I really loved being involved. But... I'll never forget Tyler Hansbrough's freshman year going in and beating J.J. Reddick and Sheldon Williams on senior night. And uh, after the game, somebody took a picture of two Duke students sitting in the stands. No one else was still there. Everybody's gone in there, colored, painted the whole thing. And they, they showed up in the Daily Tar Heel. And, you know, but same kind. Mike's got some of those games. I mean, he remembers that Austin River shot, too, for sure. the other reasons. Right. You know, that of kind of thing. Yeah. But, no, I just I think it's just – most of the time, uh, it's it's stood up to the the pressure and stood up to the boo ha ha about getting this big time game. You spelled the word H E L L, and that that's a characteristic of yours too. I wanted to ask you about just that. You try hard, it seems, and did in your press conferences would have slip occasionally to say, "Daggum, mm-hmm. frickin', mm-hmm. give a flip." Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got some others too, I think. But uh, what, where does that come from? Oh, you know, Coach Smith never cursed. You know, I sat beside him on the bench for ten years, and I played golf with him a hundred times. And if you can put up with referees on basketball <laughs> and play golf and three putt or four putt or whatever it is, and you don't curse, you don't curse. <laughs> One of Virginia's former players said that Coach Smith cursed him, which was a lie. Mm. I, I don't care. I'd fight the guy if he's had a chainsaw in his hand right now because that that was a lie. Uh, so I had tremendous respect for Coach Smith and didn't feel like I needed to talk like that. But, yes, I slipped up. My first year as a head coach, I told the guys I was going to get They had to give me seven curse words the whole year. Uh, one of the players said the words that I used as curse words were really curse words. <laughs> but I got, I've got i gotten way worse, way worse. Really? Yeah. But Is it worse on the golf course? Is that where it gets you? A little bit of both. I yeah. mean, it, you daggum dummy. God, how you big dummy. How can Wanda wouldn't hit a shot like that? You know, that's be what I'm saying on the golf course. But uh, I'd say probably uh, uh, it depends on uh, how bad I was playing golf or how bad I was coaching. But uh, no, I, I, even as a high school coach, uh, I did that and I started to say, hey, this is not the way you want your kids to be talked to. And so I tried my best to not do that. Uh, uh, if I started cursing, it was really things weren't really going very well at all. And that's still no excuse. You know, I wish I hadn't hadn't done it at all. 
You, uh, but you also have some uh, really uh, interesting terms of endearment. Uh, rascal. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing, right? Yeah. If you're a rascal, yeah. what, what is a rascal or a sucker? Sometimes you call people a sucker. Well, you know, the best one is he's a tough little nut. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. the best. The tough one. little nut. Yeah. yeah, it's usually talked about a point guard. You know, the Marcus uh-huh. Pates, the Joel Berries of the world, and uh, uh, those, those were all ideas of endearment to me. And it was uh, something that the players, uh, I think they always understood where where I stood. What would you say is the single favorite thing you've done since you've retired? Single favorite thing I've done since I retired? No question, having more time with the grandkids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just... 12-year-old boy, 11-year-old little boy, 4-year-old little boy, finally got a little granddaughter at 3 now, and a little 4-year-old will be 5 at the end of the month of September. But being able to do things with them, Scott, was the one thing that always bothered me is that I didn't think I did as good a job as I could have done uh, making more time with my family. And, you know, Scotty, for example, said that I would set meals and wouldn't let anybody miss any meals because I was going to be there and, you know, tried to do family things. But I know I missed a lot of things and uh, I never could get those back. And so since April 1st, 2021, I've really tried to do more, be there and have more fun. And I've gone on three educational trips with the 12-year-old and 11-year-old, just got back from Tron Palace down in New Bern and went to Atlantic Beach and uh, did those things. Went with my daughter's dance studio down to Orlando uh, this summer. A COVID convention broke out, including me for the second time. Oh, and shoot, that. really? And oh, so, man. So it's, but I, I've been able to do more of those things than I ever had before. And uh, this is nowhere near as good as that, but I did have my second hole in one. It's 21 years ago, and then had one about three weeks ago. Really? And so Where was, was that? Hendersonville Country Club, All right. up in the mountains. And the craziest thing was, uh, I've had two, uh, both of them on uh, short par threes. One was in Kansas, and we lived on a golf course, and I got home and got Wanda. I said, come on, I'll show you where the, I made a hole in one. Somebody already called her or something. Other. So we went down, and she said, how far is that? And I said, 128 yards. And she said, that's so close, it shouldn't even count. I said, get in the cart, let's go home. <laughs> and so this time it was even worse because it was an elevated tee, but it was 125 yards playing 116 because of the elevation. But the good thing is both of them I saw. Both times, it hit it about 15 feet past the hole and backed it up into the hole both times. But this time, it's so crazy because everybody's jumping around. People started coming out of houses because I'm acting a fool. You know? And so my buddies are with me in the whole bit. And uh, so I get the ball out of the cup, and we go over to the next tee. And I said, gosh, we didn't even take a picture. I don't even know how to act. And so Buzzy was one of my friends there with me. And I said, Buzzy, Come stand over here, and we'll get somebody else to take a picture where we can see the green in the background. So I walk over to the back of the tee, and I looked over at the green. All of a sudden, the ball hits and goes in the hole. The group behind us, a guy had a hole in one the I think it's number 13, 12, at uh, Hendersonville Country Club. Had not had a hole in one there all summer. I make one, there's a guy behind us, and the next group made one right behind me. Got contagious. Yeah. yeah. Sort of made, sort of, sort of <laughs> made my feelings go down. I thought I'd done something special kind of thing. So, <laughs> you thought you were like playing putt putt. Oh, yeah, people get it at everybody at the beach one. or something. That's right. <laughs> well, that's neat. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier off air, but if you could only play one golf course the rest of your life, where would that be? You know, and I'll tell you another part of that's good. If I could be there by just snapping my fingers, 
I'd play Grandfather Mountain. I'm an old mountain boy, and it's the most beautiful place. Mr. Morton was just off the charts, loved North Carolina, the state, the university, North Carolina's Tar Heel basketball team, and he was great. And his grandson, Jack's still working, doing, taking pictures. But I just thought that was the most beautiful. And it's the most pressure I've ever felt on the golf course. Because Coach Smith set it up for me to go there the first time I ever went. And and at one time I thought I could play. You know, not anymore, but I had to have three handicap at one time and thought I could play. So Coach Smith says, All right, I bet you five dollars you can't shoot in the seventies from the blue tees. And I said, Okay. And so at that time, of course, it's had uh, blue, white, and ladies' tees. Now you got 12 tees on some of them or something or other. But so we finished. My high school buddies were with me. I said, guys, we got to back up. And I said, why? And I said, because I made the bet with Coach Smith. Three guys said, we didn't make that bet. <laughs> <laughs> so on, a set, on the 18th fairway, I'm standing in the middle of the fairway, and I'm 180 yards out. And if I knock it in the middle of the green and two-putt, I'm going to shoot 78. It's the only time in my life I had backed off of a shot. Really? I was feeling so much pressure. Coach Smith's 200 miles away <laughs> for $5. Yeah, it's quite an effect on you. Yeah, yeah for so, five bucks. Yeah, so I backed off of it. And then I hit it in the middle of the green, two putting. So I beat him out of $5. But it also shows the, that golf is the one thing that I can get away. I feel like I can compete myself in basketball. You know, you watched. I stood over and yelled, run, run, run. I wasn't doing anything. And in golf, you got to do it yourself. And so I adopted that after I stopped playing after my freshman year at North Carolina was a way for me to compete. And I'd love, I mean, last week I had two of my grandsons and we went over to Quail Hollow and played six holes. I mean, I just love that part of it. But I love the competition part. And people would say, what would be your dream foursome? And, you know, they'd think I'd say Michael and Beyonce and Arnold Palmer or something like that. But it'd be three of my buddies. Because mm. that's where I love it is being able to be my high school coach, some of my teammates, guys that I played with and against. I still play with those guys, and that's where I can really have fun. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. You've just heard the first half of our conversation, but there's much more to come. But at the end, Scott, I'll tell you this sometimes I wouldn't call it just so I'd give them something to talk about. No way. Oh, it would. Really? You somebody are stubborn. Said, oh, somebody said, you want to call a time? I said, no, let's give him something to talk about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's exactly the way it was. For that, please purchase a premium subscription to our show exclusively on Apple Podcasts. And for video of these interviews, visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. I've been the luckiest guy alive. My family at home, my family on the court. No one has been more fortunate than me. Thank you. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. This show is produced by Jeff Siner and Kata Stevens, and the director of audio at McClatchy is Davin Coburn. For lots more content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends and consider a digital subscription. Connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or by email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next week.